Well, hello and welcome. I'm sorry for the late start today. We had a couple of uh, minor technical issues, which fortunately we don't have too often, but sometimes those things happen. Uh, my name is Guy Stevens. I'm the founder and executive director of the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. Uh, really happy to have you joining us here today. Uh, very excited about our program today. As always, I, I really enjoy these and I hope you do as well. Uh, for those that might not be familiar with the Alliance, uh, the Alliance started about three years ago. Uh, we began really trying to raise awareness about the use of restraint and seclusion in schools across the country. Uh, over those three years, our mission has continued to grow. Uh, we're really interested in, in things far beyond seclusion and restraint. We're interested in, of course, restraint and seclusion, also suspension, expulsion, and corporal punishment that might be happening in schools. But even more broadly, we're interested in, in all the things that are happening often to people uh, in the name of behavior. And a lot of the approaches that are being taken that are really harming to a lot of individuals. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of very bad outcomes, uh, even kids getting pushed down kind of the school to prison pipeline. So our vision is not only about safer schools, but we, we want to see uh, less approaches like restraint seclusion everywhere that they might be happening. So today I'm, I'm very excited to have Dr. Alex Klein joining us. Uh, Alex is going to be talking a bit about neurodiversity affirming care. And uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, I got an opportunity to meet Alex, well, probably probably about a year ago. Uh, really uh, have a tremendous amount of respect for the work that he's doing and really excited about this. I do want to remind you, if you have questions during the interview, uh, what we're going to do is we're probably gonna take most of the questions at the end of the presentation. Uh, however, you're free to ask those questions anytime you might have them and I'll try to keep an eye. And as things wrap up, I'll try to go back to those questions. So uh, don't, don't be afraid of losing your question. Go ahead and put that in the chat at any time. Uh, and we will try to get to those as we get through the presentation. Uh, as always, today's session is being recorded. So it will be available on YouTube, on Facebook, and as an audio podcast. Uh, so you can always go back if you miss part of it and listen to it later. Um, before we get started here, uh, please feel free in the chat. Let us know who you are and where you're from. We'd love to know who's on today. Uh, and with that, let me go ahead and uh, introduce uh, Dr. Alex Klein. So um, Alex, welcome and thanks for joining us. I'm going to give a little bit of a background on who you are. Uh, and I know that right now you are you are looking at us and, and also looking at your presentation and, and ready to go. Uh, Dr. Alex Klein is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in child and family therapy, uh, neurodevelopmental differences such as uh, autism spectrum uh, conditions and ADHD, uh, as well as parenting. Uh, he received his doctorate in clinical psychology from the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California. Uh, he's trained in child, adolescent, and adult psychotherapy and assessment with clients who present a range of diagnoses. Uh, he's worked at the Kaiser Permanente in the Oakland Medical Center and also has a private practice. Uh, his primary interests include neurodiversity-informed care, uh, couples and family therapy, parenting challenging children, uh, pathological uh, demand avoidance, social justice uh, trauma, education, and the supervision and training of graduate students. Uh, a former teacher and school-based therapist, Dr. Klein consults with school districts uh, to help develop more appropriate learning environments for challenging students. Uh, Dr. Klein's greatest joys are spending time with his family and friends, music, exploring the outdoors with his wife and twin daughters in the Bay Area. So we are really excited to have uh, Alex Klein joining us today. Uh, as I mentioned, I got a chance to meet Alex uh, probably a year ago, maybe a little less, uh, doing a, a training that we we were both doing through a mutual connection, which brings us back to the pathological demand avoidance, uh, Diane, Diane Gould, uh, who had uh, had 
introduced us on the, the uh, training that we attended. So Alex, a huge welcome. Really excited to have you here today. Really excited to have you talking about what you're going to be sharing with us today. Um, so uh, a big welcome from all of us. Well, thank you so much, Guy, for having me. And I also really want to thank you for the work you are doing uh, with the Alliance Against Seclusion and Restraint. It's, of course, um, you know, work that's really near and dear to my heart and, and really, really important work. And I think uh, fits in nicely with some of the concepts uh, that I'm going to be talking about today. So thank you as well. Absolutely. No, I, I appreciate that. And uh, it, it's so nice to have uh, so many amazing uh, allies and professionals out there doing really uh, fantastic work. And, you know, I kind of look at this as there, there are a lot of things that need a lot of help out there, but yeah. it's always great to know that there are people like you that are, uh, you know, working to, to train others and, and doing uh, great work. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring your presentation up on the screen here mm -hmm. uh, and we're going to let you take it away. I do want to let you know real quickly as I'm doing that, uh, we've had a couple people that have already said hello uh, and I'll just share a couple of these real quick. Uh, Ruth Ann said, I'm autistic young adult. I'm extremely passionate about educating people on disability related topics. And hello, Ruth Ann, and thanks for joining us. Uh, I have uh, Diane Cruz here from Chicago, uh, unschooling her eight year old autistic and ADHD son. Uh, and uh, let's see, um, have uh, Kayashan who is a music theorist, uh, listening to children is important. So we have a couple of people that have already uh, said hello here. Uh, but with that, I am going to disappear, let you take over your presentation. And if you need me, I'll be here. Uh, and of course I'll be monitoring for questions that might come up, but we'll let you take the reins and uh, I will be back with you as you're wrapping up and we'll get some Q and A done. Great, thanks so much, Guy. Absolutely, take it away. All right. So the title of this presentation is Neurodiversity Affirming Care in Autism. And I really got interested in this question, uh, what does it mean to be neurodiversity affirming? A long time ago, back when I was doing uh, my doctorate and my dissertation topic was um, essentially I was interviewing young autistic adults about their experiences with therapy growing up, um, their experiences with the therapists, qualities they looked for, qualities they did not like, uh, therapies that were helpful and not helpful. Um, so I've been really interested in this topic for a really long time and really trying to sort of dedicate uh, my career to some extent to sort of amplifying autistic voices and being uh, an advocate to the community here. And the, the key questions that I want to get into in this presentation today are really about how can we reframe our understanding of disability and the autism spectrum? How can we do better in assessing autism and how can we do better supporting autistic people and their families? And I think while there's been some moves in the right direction, I think we have a long way to go. And a lot of you, I'm sure, um, you know, run into a lot of the challenges along the way in, in your programs being neurodiversity affirming. So we'll get into that. Um, and the first point I wanna emphasize is how important it is to listen to autistic people. I do still see this in professional circles, sometimes with parents and schools, where some of the sort of ideas and um, you know criticisms about therapies that have come from the autistic community, I have noticed that sometimes people get kind of defensive or don't want to really kind of take that in. Uh, and I think that's a real issue. We need to really be aware of the power dynamics at play in this dynamic and also 
um, we want to uh, really prioritize and amplify uh, the autistic voices and really let them lead the way here. Um, so I first want to start with talking about what I see as uh, the key shifts in neurodiversity affirming care. And the first point that I think is a really crucial one um, is what I'm calling moving from won't to can't. And I think some of you might know what I mean here, uh, but I want to explain it in detail, right? So there's a very common misperception that kids are struggling because they just won't do better. They won't behave. They won't uh, stop yelling, for example. Um, and the shift, and this largely comes from uh, Dr. Ross Green, who wrote The Explosive Child, and I'm going to talk more about that uh, as an approach I really love, uh, and uh, the approach of collaborative and proactive solutions, and sometimes referred to as collaborative problem solving. Um, Dr. Green wrote, you know, kids do well if they can, as a contrast to kids do well if they want to. And I think this is a really critical shift in framing um, that really influences in a positive way the way that we understand a kid's challenges and it influences the way that we respond to a kid's challenges, right? So if a kid won't, you know, if we think a kid won't respect us or, or won't listen or won't, uh, you know, stop banging on the table, you know, during math class, um, or are we saying, well, a kid, you know, this kid right now, you know, they, they can't, they can't regulate their emotional state. They can't manage their impulses. They can't be flexible in the way that we want them to, right? And that's a much different framing. So I think that's a really important piece. Um, another important shift, I think, is the move from control to comfort, right? So I think that there's way too much effort to what I would say over control kids who have difficult behaviors and have difficulty meeting adult expectations. Um, I also thought this could be called, uh, you know, correct, moving from correction to connection. I think I see this as sort of similar, uh, moving from control to comfort. And I think when we find that kids are really struggling, oftentimes we see uh, actually a ramping up of efforts to control and correct a child's behavior. And I'd say that that's a misguided attempt and, and and missing the mark. And I think that these are kids that uh, are being misunderstood and that we need to be offering more opportunities for connections, stronger relationships, more comfort and this kind of thing. I think another important shift. Um, so I kind of use this as an example. Uh, you know, it's, it's more specific, the move from whole body listening to any body listening. And what I mean by that is some of you might have heard of how, you know, this is something that's maybe encouraged from students or in any kind of social interaction or a social skills group or what you're like, no, nope, we want to turn your body here. Look at the person in the eyes, you know, whole body listening. This is what it looks like. Um, and so, you know, moving away from that as so what's implied in there is that there is one right way to show that you're listening or that there's one right way to be. And a neurodiversity affirming approach gets gets out of that and say, well, actually, this can look in different ways. And maybe some kid needs to be, you know, spinning in their chair back and forth or, you know, uh, you know, spinning their uh you know, their, their uh, fidget toy and, um, you know, actually needs to be kind of pacing back and forth a little bit. And it doesn't mean necessarily that they're not listening, right? And, you know, there's not one right way to be, right? The sort of neurotypical um, whole body listening is not the ideal, right? So kind of getting out of that framing, um, I think, is an important shift. 
Another shift that I'm going to go into a bit more detail later on is the shift from uh, external behavior, uh, you know, looking at what are the external behaviors to what is the internal experience of the child. Uh, you know, we might hear, oh, uh, you know, uh, this kid uh, eloped, right? This is a term I hear a lot, you know, to, to refer to ran out of the classroom or something like that. It ran out of the um, and, um, you know, and like this was the behavior and this is what we're hearing about. And then, you know, a school or whoever might develop a plan, right, to try and deal with that. Um, but when we shift to, you know, well, what is the external internal experience of the child? We're really looking at like, well, is there some sensory overwhelm going on? Is there a feeling of shame about not understanding the curriculum? Is there some bullying going on that we're not really seeing? Uh, like what is going on internally for this child and, and really moving from focusing on the behavior that we see to the internal experience of the child, I think is an important shift. Um, and I think another important shift, and this is, is from, uh, has to do with flexibility. And this is not having to do with the flexibility of the child per se, but the flexibility of the adult in working with the child. So I think that a lot of times um, what we see is for children who have difficulty being flexible and very, you know, persistent in their beliefs and, and um, you know, are, are, can be met with kind of a, a, an inflexible adult stance to, you know, we must uh, do A, B, and C, and this is our plan, and these are our expectations, and, uh, you know, I cannot deviate from that because that's wrong or that's not how to be. Um, and I think that that leads to a lot of problems. So what I want to see is sort of more flexibility from providers, from parents, therapists, schools, teachers, all of the above, right? I think we meet um, inflexibility with, uh, you know, more flexibility from the adult who may have and likely has the ability to be more flexible than the child has, who again is not, it's not that they won't be flexible, they're not choosing to be inflexible, but it's that they can't be as flexible as we might want them to be. Um, and, you know, in the context of, so this is April, this is uh, Autism Acceptance Month, uh, moving from uh, awareness of autism, and there was some early campaigns that have been criticized by the uh, autistic self-advocacy movement about, um, you know, uh, you know, I remember back in New York seeing billboards that would say things like, you know, beware, autism is, you know, increasing. We must, you know, give, you must give money for a cure, right? So, you know, like, be aware, the numbers are this, the numbers are that. Um, this sort of fear-based cure rhetoric, which I think is really problematic. Uh, and moving to a place of accepting that, you know, neurodivergence, autistic people are part of the human genome. They've always been part of the human genome and they always will. And we need to accept, you know, the strengths and, and the challenges that that, that comes with. Um, and a, another key shift I think that's really critical has to do with um, the shift from independence to interdependence. And what I mean by that is oftentimes, you know, we hear that, you know, independence is like this is this gold standard that, you know, like must be, you know, independent. And if a kid is not independent, then like you failed as a parent or the school or whatever. Right. And, you know, I mean, that's a values based framework that I don't think is necessarily helpful. Like what if the goal becomes more, you know, how does the child learn to advocate them for themselves or how does the young adult know like, well, when they do need support and, you know, and why is that a bad thing? Right. So that's another important shift I wanted to talk about. And, you know, getting this links to what I said earlier about, you know, moving from external behavior to internal experience is moving from the what 
to the why. And what I mean by that is I can't tell you, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine. I will hear from parents, for example, that, you know, a, a therapist or a teacher or somebody kind of emails them saying like your kid threw the, the, the pencil at the other kid and uh, your kid, you know, like screamed and, you know, kicked, kicked me out, you know, out on the playground. And, you know, like, okay, I mean, it is important to know when things actually happen and when incidents occur. And as you do in your work, Guy, really importantly, sort of uh, not just advocating uh, to eliminate seclusion restraint, but for schools and, and programs and facilities to actually document accurately when it's happening. So I do think there's some degree of like, well, we do want to know what's happening. But what I think is a, a more important focus is, well, why did this behavior occur in the first place, right? Because if we don't understand why the behavior occurred that, you know, okay, this is about a difficulty with flexibility, your transitions, uh, uh, sensory overwhelm, um, you know, uh, you know, another an adult who maybe was picking the wrong battle um, and uh, a kid who, you know, is having some transitions going on at home and that's influencing behavior at school and sleep and medication, whatever other things are influencing where the child is at in this particular time. Like that is an that's an important conversation to have, you know, not a laundry list of all the the bad things that the kid did. Right. So I want to move away from that. And along those lines, I, I want to just get attention-seeking behavior, like just out of the vocabulary. I, I, I no longer think that that should be used. Right now, I know that there are, you know, sometimes where um, somebody might, uh, you know, uh, my my uh, three-year-old might do some, uh, um, you know, uh, connection-seeking behaviors. You know, wanting to see how I'm going to react or something like that. Right. But I think, you know, first of all, I, I think I want to think of these things as connection seeking rather than attention seeking, because we think of it as attention seeking. Oftentimes the recommendation becomes ignore the, this behavior that is actually often connection seeking. Um, and that is no, not a helpful framework uh, to actually help kids to actually know what's really going on with them to get into the, well, why are they doing this behavior in the first place? So I want to move away from this attention seeking stuff. Um, and then uh, lastly, I think one of the most critical shifts really has to do with changing the system moving uh, and not changing the child. So change the system, not the child. And what I mean by that is that there's just so much emphasis on this is what the child needs to do better. This is the behavior that, the, that we want to see from the kid. Um, this is uh, what the kid is doing wrong, right? I'd rather have behavior plans that focus on adults and what adults can do to respond to challenging behaviors. I think that's actually more important than a behavior plan for the child in some cases. And yes, the behavior plan for the adult may ultimately help the, and probably will ultimately help the challenging behavior we see from the child. Um, but again, I think that when we over-focus on changing child, it, it really, you know, gets into this, the difference between a medical model and a social model of disability. In a medical model of disability, we think of the problem as being located within the child, and we need to re remediate the deficits in the child, right? When we talk about a social model of disability, which the neurodiversity movement advocates for, it's like, well, there's larger problems in society, ableism, 
policies on on you know on a on a local uh, you know national scale. Um, the school systems, you know, the, the, the family system, like these are things that often we're going to really need to focus on how are the systems around the child understanding and supporting the child rather than so much focus on changing the child themselves. So I want to, I want the shift. I want, we, we want to see a shift in focus there. Um, another thing that I think is important to think about in the way that we talk about the autism spectrum is that, you know, many people in, you know, who are so knowledgeable at autism could tell you, you know, like some of the criteria, some of the deficits associated with autism, but how many people can give a long list of some of the strengths associated with autism? Not as many, right? It's going to be many more people who are going to be giving a much longer list of the deficits than strengths. And we do know that there are strengths associated with autism, uh, uh, long-term memory, uh, the ability to memorize new information, pattern detection, uh, you know, the ability to, you know, hyper-focus, uh, sometimes referred to as monotropism, uh, and to really kind of get uh, very focused on a certain thing. That can be a strength in some in some contexts, right? So um, Greta Thunberg uh, here on the picture uh, talks about that a bit as well. And the language really matters here. Um, I think that, you know, when you look at the, the, the language in uh, the DSM, that's the diagnostic manual we use for diagnosis, you know, things like rigid, right? You know, like, could we say, well, actually, you know, okay, like, so how does your child show persistence, right? Or do they have a strong sense of justice? Um, you know, are they exacting, you know? Um, and sometimes these things are strengths and sometimes these things are challenges. And we just want to be careful not to only talk about these things in terms of a problem, right? Um, and, you know, this piece here where I have high need for control, right? So a lot of times I might hear, oh, you know, he's he's controlling. Oh, she's too controlling in play or, oh, they do this, uh, you know? And, but if we say like, actually, you know, he, he really has a high need for for control, you know, in, in these new environments where he just doesn't know what to expect. And, you know, with, with kids, he doesn't really know and, and sort of helps, you know, it's really high need for control that helps him manage anxiety, right? That's a different, you know, that kind of elicits a different reaction from us if that's how we talk about the issue, as opposed to saying like, he's too, he's too controlling, this is difficult, you know. Um, again, language from the, uh, our diagnostic manual, highly restricted fixated interests that are abnormal in intensity, right? We ask about these when we're assessing kids, you know, like, what if we ask, like, what kind of expertise and what does your kid show passion for? Um, you know, that's a, just a different way to talk about these things, I think is important. And even with something like, you know, your kid can't transition. Well, like, does your kid go really deep into their experiences? Doesn't want to rush through life? You know, what is that? What does that look like? Um, again, I think that the language we use to ask about symptoms when we're doing assessment, if we're doing, you know, therapy, you know, hearing about challenges um, can, you know, can influence the sort of amount of a negativity a kid and a family uh, takes in. Um, and I think that we really want to talk about neurodiversity informed care as trauma informed care. And I think a lot of clinicians say, you know, we're, we're, we're trauma informed and I understand what trauma is. I think we really want to make sure we're going deep into that with the autistic community and understanding where uh, this is coming from. So, you know, there's a study where, you know, autistic uh, people were, uh, were, were interviewed and, and filling out scales and it showed that 
half, almost half were experiencing post-traumatic symptoms. So that's extremely high, way higher than the non-autistic population. We know that bullying is really, really high, much higher in the autistic population. It's a really critical thing to be addressing. We know in, and can absolutely be experienced as very traumatic. Uh, we know that sensory assaults, not just a kid who acts, you know, for, you know, uh, something becomes louder than they were hoping because the uh, fire alarm went off, but there's even practices that still exist today where, uh, you know, kids are being asked as a way to try and desensitize them to sensory experiences where kids are um, being, you know, forced or, uh, you know, strongly encouraged to stay in these environments that are sensory way too overstimulating for them. Now, that is not uh, uh, helpful, nor is it ethical. It does not work and can be experienced as, as traumatic. Um, you know, and some autistic adults are talking a lot about ABA and harmful and traumatic experiences they have with that, where their stimming behaviors, which were used for self-regulation, were suppressed, for example. Um, and the history in and of itself, it, you know, just knowing the history, uh, we want to, you know, there's a lot of trauma in the history of autism uh, treatment for parents. It was only 50 years ago, 40, 50 years ago, that the refrigerator mother theory of autism was like the prevailing view in the states that like the cold mothers who uh, were not warm enough with their children caused their kids autism right this ridiculous uh stuff that we know is untrue then there's seeds of this that you know persists uh these days but um you know uh, i think that in the history of the way autistic kids have been treated with with punishments uh in throughout history and to this day um we you know, there is a lot of trauma. We really want to be aware of that. And, you know, and Guy, I know that you have talked about this, the um, seclusion and restraint, right? Like these are, a lot of people will say that these are necessary, required practices that we have, uh, you know, like there's nothing else we can do. And I would suggest that is extremely rare that that's the case, like the very low percentage of seclusion and restraint practices uh, were really necessary to prevent severe life-threatening injury. Um, and uh, those practices we also know are traumatic, right? So we want to be really informed and really know what's going on here. Um, applying an intersectional lens. This is really critical to think about how do autism, gender, race, and other identities intersect? Um, so uh, we know that black and brown children are diagnosed later. Uh, than white children. We know they're more likely to be misidentified, uh, maybe get a label of uh, oppositional defiant disorder, which, you know, frankly, as far as I'm concerned, I, I want to just abolish that diagnosis, but uh, it's in there. Um, you know, uh, not identified accurately, not seen as, you know, maybe seen as more aggressive than they actually are, uh, you know, not be the, the neurodevelopmental roots of some kids of color, not being, you know, the neurodevelopmental roots of the behaviors, not being identified accurately. Um, girls and women, we, we see higher rates of assault. We know that uh, women face more pressure, girls face more pressure to mask and camouflage certain maybe uh, social differences or autistic behaviors. Um, and that has a real cost to it. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. And we also know that there's a high uh, overlap of the trans and non-binary and gender expansive community and autistic identities, right? So if you are autistic, way more likely to, you know, belong to that community than the non-autistic. 
community. So um, that is important to sort of know that this overlap is occurring at, at pretty high rates. And, uh, and, and critically, that we're not using the autism diagnosis as a reason to not allow for gender affirming care, which is uh, very important that we do want to allow for that. So, um, and as Guy, as you mentioned earlier, PDA, right? We did connect, uh, you know, um, through Diane and talked about PDA, which is not, um, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Um, public displays of infections, uh, affections, not that. This stands for pathological demand avoidance um, and sometimes referred to, and I like this way of, of putting it as a pervasive drive for autonomy. Um, I think that the reason that I, so this is considered a subtype of autism that's largely used in the UK. Um, it hasn't, it is not an official subtype, it's not an official diagnosis, but it's thought of as a subtype of autism where these are kids who, uh, this is an anxiety-based resistance. And the anxiety-based part is really critical because again, we want our framing as, uh, okay, this is a kid who's having trouble regulating anxiety and stress as opposed to purposely oppositional behavior, right? So anxiety-based response to the everyday demands of life. So this could, um, this could be look like, uh, you know, getting um, when, uh, you know, like time, it's time to come to dinner, right? So like, you know, a, th a kid to something as sort of benign as that might be perceived as a threat, right? And in doing it and saying, you know, let's come to dinner that way to this child just isn't going to work that well, right? Or even the internal demand of like feeling hungry or feeling tired, if one has the interoceptive awareness to read those cues, we know interoception is, you know, and understanding internal body cues can be difficult in the autistic community. But let's say they, you know, they are reading those cues, even that can be perceived as a demand and a threat to their sense of autonomy. Um, and the reason I think that understanding PDA uh, fits into a neurodiversity affirming care framework is because a lot of parents I see are getting really crappy advice from professionals about how to uh, how to deal with their kids. And, and I think uh, simultaneously, some kids that are not getting diagnosed with autism, but should have gotten diagnosed with autism, um, uh, parents are coming across in some cases, this PDA diagnosis say, hey, this is actually, my kid is actually autistic, it is, and they are this PDA subtype. So um, I think it is important to understand this profile and how it um, how it plays out and how to work with it. And I'm, I have a resource at the end of this presentation, but the, the PDA Society uh, in the UK is a really good resource for that. Um, so I really want to rebuild assessment practices. You know, as I was saying earlier, and it's not just the really long waits, you know, that, uh, you know, before diagnosis in some states, you know, months and months and months or more than a year, you know, it's it can be really, really long waits before assessments. But I'm, I'm really talking about, you know, this deficit focus, you know, uh, in the, uh, you know, such a strong deficit focus that I hear constantly. Uh, so, for example, uh, you know, a question in one of, uh, you know, uh, the questionnaires might be something defective, like, how does your child 
play with toys in abnormal ways or something like that, right? Like that's a very pathologizing way to put it. Sometimes these questions are asked in front of the child. We don't want to assume that they are not understanding what's being said about them or to them. I think professionals assume that too much. You want to presume competence. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, asking these questions in these pathologizing ways rather than, you know, is your kid tend to, uh, you know, think more about the inner workings of the kid and maybe this is their, uh, you know, a little engineer in the in the making or, you know, the inner the inner workings of this little toy and they like to see how it works and some of the nuance there. Um, or are they doing pretend play with it or what kind of stuff are they doing? With, you, know, you can ask questions in a different way that, again, gets out of this sort of pathologizing way um, to do it or like, you know, does your kid um, flap, flap their hands in abnormal ways? You know, like, why not just ask, you know, how does your kid show excitement? You know, what kind, you know, what kind of body, you know, with their body? How does that look? You know, like that's a, so these these are a little bit subtle, these differences, but I think it it's it's a far less pathologizing way to get at the questions. Um, and OK, another big pet peeve is um, you know, I've been running into this in my practice, you know, assessing adults, but definitely with kids, too, where parents will say, well, I told the pediatrician that, you know, I thought my kid should be assessed for autism. Uh, but, you know, the pediatrician says, oh, but, you know, like, uh, you know, she made eye contact with me and like, you know, showed shows empathy when you get got hurt. Oh, no, they can't be autistic or like, oh, but he's got friends, you know, like there's no way he could be autistic. You know, he's got friends. And this is really about uh, stereotyping. Um, and because, of course, somebody can be autistic and have friends and be autistic and make eye contact and be autistic and show empathy. Right. Some of these things might look different. Um, but, you know, like this sort of blanket ruling out of uh, autism evaluation based on these stereotypes is, is something that is really commonplace and really problematic and comes from, I think, a, 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 a negative stereotype about autism and a misunderstanding of autism. Um, we want to understand the impact of masking, right? So that's what I was talking about earlier, camouflaging autistic traits, being told, okay, you know, like that doesn't look appropriate. So let's not do this thing, this movement um, that is something that you need to regulate your anxiety. Um, that, has an, that has an impact, right? Or pretend, you know, like uh, encouraging kids through social skills training to kind of pretend like they're neurotypical in some way you know, to pretending to be something they're not, um, that's harmful, right? We want to understand that these things have an impact on a kid's sense of self, well-being, uh, has impact on anxiety, depression. We know that there's higher, higher rates of suicidal ideation in the autistic population, and this is really serious. You know, we really want to take this seriously. Um, and again, you know, how can we be more accepting of difference instead of trying to change the child so much? Um, and I want to de-emphasize functioning labels, you know, and I understand why these are used, like the high functioning, low functioning, these kinds of terms. But, um, you know, I think when we hear like, oh, this kid's, you know, he's a low functioning autistic kid or, or whatever, you know, then it's like that can lead to, first of all, people can look different in different settings, right? Or, or And so like it's not actually a useful term for the child. In, in every case, pretty much I come across. Secondly, um, maybe if they're called low functioning, then there's an assumption that they don't understand what's being said to them or something like that. 
but maybe the kid actually does or communicates in a different way or through their AAC device um, in a much more advanced way than we know that we knew about. And so, you know, like sort of putting somebody in a box of like you're low functioning, not accurate, harmful. And similarly with high functioning, which we hear a lot, um, it's like, well, your kid's so high functioning. I don't even know he's autistic or, oh, they don't need any supports in school. You know, she's so high functioning. It's like, you know, there's still needs, you know, like, yeah, things are still hard. You know, it's like people are kind of missing the mark. Um, and again, someone who's so-called high functioning in many circumstances could, um, you know, in the context of being, you know, autistic burnout and complete meltdown or overwhelm, it could look really different. So I just don't find these functioning labels to be helpful, useful, or accurate. And I want to just see assessment as more of an opportunity to help the families reframe challenges, better understand their kids. I think that, you know, uh, this sort of expert stance, like these are the things we have to do in this assessment, right? Um, you know, I think that assessors need to be more flexible. I think that sometimes we really know how a kid is going to um, struggle with a certain task. So why are we making them do that, right? I think there's other ways that are more ethical to come to an autism diagnosis. And you, when you hear about what all the hoops and all the testing that some of the families have gone through, it really uh, it does not fit well with a neurodiversity affirming framework. And I also want to tell kids that they are autistic, right? And I know that, you know, parents have, have feelings about this and, and that, that are valid. And I think that, you know, in general, we want to meet parents where they're at with, uh, you know, their own process of accepting a diagnosis if this is new to them. Um, but, you know, it's, you'd be surprised. Like, it's not uncommon. It's like fairly common that people are not telling their kids that they are autistic. And, you know, several thoughts about that. One is that not telling them that they're autistic kind of conveys that this is uh, like something secret and shameful that they, we need to like sweep this under the rug here, you know, and what's that kind of messaging, right? Two, they might find out anyway, and they often do. Right. They might find out from a teacher, uh, a therapist. It's, uh, you know, it's written in an IEP, you know, and if we are kind of getting ahead of this, having this conversation, it's an opportunity to have a more neurodiversity affirming way of talking about autism, not just in terms of challenges, which we know are there. We're not pretending like there's no challenges, but to also talk about the strengths and, and how this plays out for the kid. Um, and so I, I definitely think that we should be telling, talking to kids about it and putting it on the table. And again, it's this over-focus on the autism as a tragedy paradigm that gets conveyed from providers often to the, you know, in, these, in this diagnostic process to families that I do not find helpful. I really think, again, when we use, you know, less uh, pathologizing language, when we talk about the child and their differences better, uh, when we eliminate these billboards I mentioned, talking about how, you know, uh, autism is a, is a, you know, is a, is a crisis, let's be aware of this. And we need to, you know, like these things just, you know, contribute to a population, to an autistic population that might not be feeling that good about themselves, right? So how can we be more positive about that and get out of that paradigm? And really rethinking how we support, you know, autistic people and their families. Like it's so common for, um, you know, like the, the messaging from the initial diagnosis, you know, like early intervention, we can get your kid like uh, to a certain level, right? But the goal is not 
for your child to be neurotypical. And, and I think that's worth repeating. Like it, it, the goal is not to be neurotypical because it doesn't work, can lead to masking, which is harmful. And it is not neurodiversity affirming. It doesn't accept the, um, the child for who they really are. So we want to really get out of that. And, and we want to be in any type of therapy that we're considering. We want to be thinking about how does, um, you know, like, is that what the, what this is really going for? Right. Or is it, is it really going for kind of helping to manage anxiety? That's different, right? Like if we're helping somebody to, you know, um, previewing what the dentist is going to be like and, you know, like to make it a little less anxiety provoking, um, that's different, right? Like that's, that's not trying to make the kid neurotypical. That's trying to support a kid and make something easier for them. Um, so, but when therapies were to say like, you know, like this, we take this, uh, you know, um, this diet and, you know, like all the autistic symptoms are gone or, you know, like this therapy, you won't be able to distinguish your kid from a neurotypical kid. Like it's the wrong goal. Doesn't work. So we want to get out of that. So who needs the social skills training and who needs the behavior plan? As I talked about this earlier, right? So, you know, uh, there's an autistic researcher named Damien Milton in the UK who talks about the double empathy problem. Um, and, you know, it's not just that, um, you know, autistic people might have some difficulty understanding or empathizing with non-autistic people. It goes both directions equally, right? Like the autistic and non-autistic population are not understanding each other that well. So maybe we should be doing some training of neurotypicals to sort of be more accepting of autistic people, right? Um, we're not, you know, we don't want to have these sort of social skills training programs where the goal is to make the child seem normal. You know, it might be important to, you know, give child opportunities, you know, to get support and connection with other kids. Uh, shared interests are, you know, are, are really important to, you know, find that, that. But our goal is not to make the child neurotypical, to say for a third time here. So I really think it can be, it's like almost like a misuse of resources, spending so much time trying to change the child, but what are we doing to try to change the system around the child? That's where I wanna shift here. You know, there's been a lot of, this quote is from, um, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the book. I think it's a um, ADHD, a book, a guy who wrote, uh, uh, you know, about adult ADHD and ADHD and children. Um, Ed Hallowell, that's the name of the author. Uh, the treatment of children who behave badly has been terrible throughout history. I mean, it's true. Like we have just have not done well with children who have behavioral challenges. Uh, you know, and in fact, I think it's really important to keep that historical view that like autism therapy has really only been around for like 40, 50 years, more or less. Right. That is not a long time. And I think that to to get stuck in like, well, what we're doing now is right. Like, mm -mm, you know, we, we, have, we need more time to develop this. Um, and so I think that and so some of the problems that I see that have re is really important is this problem of overemphasis on compliance in ABA. Right. And like when we're teaching a child, you must comply, even if your your sensory needs uh, are, are making it difficult for you or your emotion regulation challenge making it difficult for you. You must comply at all costs. That's a real issue. People need to have a right to say no to things, right? And I think, you know, when we see more autistic people 
speaking out about some of the harm that they feel ABA has caused, like that's really important to listen to and to take really seriously. Um, you know, and I think autistic people need to have more input into the design and the goals of therapy. That gets into the concept of self-determination, right? Like what does the autistic person want and how do they, they want to be, right? Rather than us imposing our ideas, right? And sort of, you know, on, onto them, which I think is a really important piece too. So I don't know who's heard of spoon theory, and I really like this. I really like spoon theory as, as applied to the autistic population. So spoon theory comes from somebody that I is an adult with a chronic health condition that I think is um, lupus, I believe. And um, what she talked about was through her, you know, physical issues and fatigue, you know, challenges with fatigue is having a certain amount of spoons and spoons is kind of a metaphor for like units of energy or like emotional wherewithal. Um, I think is a way that I think about it. Um, and, you know, some kids, you know, they, they have, you know, like getting through a school day might take a lot of their spoons. Right. And then, but maybe they're required to do, you know, some kind of therapy program after school that's just too much. They just don't have the spoons for it, right? Or maybe the week was too overwhelming. We're kind of taking a, like an emotional temperature of your kid. Like, you know, do you have the spoons to do this? And I don't think that we think that way that much, right? It's like, what are the adult expectations? Let's try to get our kid to do that. But I want to be tuning into like, what does this kid have the spoons for here? And that gets into having the right level of expectations for a kid, which I see time and time again is one of the central issues um, in behavioral challenges coming up. This can go in, in, in both directions. So for example, sometimes, you know, like, okay, a kid has an IEP and an autism diagnosis. Like it doesn't mean that they can't learn or can't be challenged. Of course, we want to challenge the kid to where they're at, right? But what I, what I see more often is that well, we are expecting this kid because of hidden disabilities, ones that are not as apparent to us, like executive functioning issues or remembering to do chores or having enough emotional energy or spoons to get the homework done after the school day um, is, you know, like we're expecting things that a child can't do, right? Not that a child won't do, but that a child can't do. And so we really want to make sure that we're having the right level of challenge tuning into like, where is my kid at? Where is my student at? Where is my patient at? And what can I be expecting of them, right? And finding the right level of, ex of expectation. So, you know, in talking about neurodiversity affirming therapies, right? So um, I, as I talked about earlier, a big fan of Ross Green, who, who wrote The Explosive Child. He's the psychologist, talked about the collaborative and practice solutions approach, just really a very respectful, approach that really incorporates the views of the child. It's like rather than the adult imposing uh, so-called solutions that may not be working that well to prevent challenging behavior, how do we engage kids as a collaborator in solving their own problems and be more flexible as adults um, in finding the right level of expectations? Really, really, really well done. Therapy has research support for it. Really uh, a fan. Um, attunement to sensory issues. I mean, this is a really, really important point, right? That I think that still 
even though we you know we know over the recent decades that you know the role of sensory processing is really critical in thinking about behavior challenges or regulation we still don't have enough attunement to sensory processing issues we still don't have um you know insurance companies that are covering sensory processing supports um in you know no therapy at all i have here is a question right because sometimes parents come to me saying like you know like I, I was, uh, when I got diagnosed a while ago, you know, when my kid got a diagnosis, um, my, uh, I, I, I was told like, okay, like let's do these three days a week of ABA and one day, you know, one, three weekdays a week after school, someone's coming over for three hours. Um, and the other days got this other thing going on, like, can I stop? You know, like I, I hear that. I hear people asking me. And it's like, yeah, you can stop, you know, like you, we have to know it's not the diagnosis that gears the program. It's the child that influences what the program is. Um, and for some kids, it's just too much, right? You know, maybe like a shared interest Minecraft group online or something like that. Sure. Right. Like, you know, this kinds of things are great, but maybe we're just like doing too much for, for a kid. So sometimes pulling back from therapies actually is helpful, somewhat ironically. Um, again, focusing more on well-being and support without all the appointments, right? Um, another neurodiversity-affirming approach is really making sure we're looking at uh, behavior as communication. Uh, I think is a really important piece, right? Is It's like for kids who are non-speaking, um, there's a lot of communication going on still. And are we really listening to what that communication is? Um, the low arousal approach, I'm a big fan of, so I've learned a little bit of this. This is also coming out of the UK. And it's really, again, focusing on, I think, the caregivers changing more than the adult or the child, uh, you know, who has a, a disability changing. And it's a, really a focus over the stress more than focusing on the behavior itself. So how do we manage and help the stress um, over the behavior? And it's a really lovely approach that I think fits into a neurodiversity affirming care. Um, offering multiple modes of communication. Like there are some kids that like in the, in these, um, in this dysregulated states, we're using all this language as a, you know, as the, as the parent, as the therapist, as the teacher, like a kid just can't handle that, but maybe they could just like put up a one or a two or a three on their hands to, um, to communicate like how much something you said resonates with them. Or maybe we need to just back off and not try to use so many words because it's not actually helping. We need to be reflecting on that, too. Um, and, uh, you know, more recently, I, I've done a little research into Ukeru, which is a crisis intervention approach. That's I'm sure, Guy, you know about this. I think you've talked about this, which really um, is an, a great alternative to using restraint and seclusion um, practices in resident. I think I've seen it applied in some residential facilities. So I'm really um, been learning more about this approach, which is really lovely. So there are some neurodiversity affirming therapies out there, um, and I think we want to see more of it. So. Here I have listed some resources I think are great. Um, so the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, ASAN, wonderful, Autistic Women Non-Binary Network, Lydia Brown um, at autisticoya.net. Um, been really doing a lot of reading through uh, the Therapist Neurodiversity Collective. These are, um, there's the website listed here. Um, and this is a, a collective of speech therapists, OTs, I think it's largely those those two groups um, that are uh, doing really amazing work. Um, Neuroclastic got, neuroclastic.com, really great writings from autistic authors. I found that really useful. I've been really digging into that lately. 
Um, the PDA Society here, I have the website listed, I think is great to learn more about PDA and, and approaches um, uh, from them, because I think that's a really neurodiversity affirming framing and approach to working with kids. Um, LearnFromAutistics.com, that's something I've also come in contact with more recently. I think it's a parent of an autistic kid who, who wrote that, but it's like really kind of collecting the views from autistic adults about parenting and therapy in, in, in a really sort of organized way. Um, Alfie Cohen, who I think, um, you know, some of you may have heard of is, a another, um, clinician who talks a lot about alternatives to behaviorism and some of the problems of behaviorism that I would really recommend looking into some of what he's done. Uh, and Mona Delahook and Guy, I know that you, I know that you've connected with her and I think had her on the show and she wrote beyond behaviors. And I think more recently brain body parenting, which is next on my list. I really want to read that. Um, I think Brain Body Parenting came out more recently, uh, but she's absolutely advocating for more neurodiversity affirming approaches. So there's some resources um, and that is the end of the presentation. So um, I wanted to see if anyone has any uh, questions, comments, concerns, thoughts um, that's come up. Hey, Alex. Uh, so I'm going to come back up here and uh, you're welcome to close out your presentation if you'd like. And that way you can uh, uh, again see uh, see the screen here. So you can uh, just kind of move off of that back to your uh, Chrome tab. And we do have a couple of questions that are queued up. So I'll, I'll start going through a few of those. Uh, and it looks like we're, we're back on the same screen now. Uh, Alex, that was really great. And, and you know, I've got to tell you, my, my neck hurts a little bit from going like this. Um, so much you said, um, you know, <laughs> was resonating with me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I saw the same coming from our audience as, as people were looking at things. So I'm going to first begin by going into some of the comments that I saw here. Uh, and uh, I'm just going to go back uh, a little bit here. Um, and this was a comment from Ruth Ann who talked about forcing eye contact and uh, once having a therapist who said I wasn't um, being present because I wasn't looking at her and I was fidgeting. It was so frustrating. Uh, and, and Ruth Ann, I can think yeah. back to an experience that I had with my son where for many years he had a goal on his IP about making eye contact. And one day as I became more aware and more enlightened, I suddenly stood up and was like, no, 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 no. Uh, Cooper does not need to look at anyone. In fact, he can be looking, you know, at, at something entirely unrelated and be listening to the three conversations that are happening around him. Um, but you know, the, the tendency um, from, I, I love that you touch on the medical model and the, the social model, but the tendency in the medical model is really to, you know, kind of pathologize the behavior, to look at it from a deficit standpoint, and to try to make everyone the same, to try to make everyone neurotypical. And, yeah. and that's such the wrong approach. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry to hear with him that that happened to you. And unfortunately, it's really common, right? It's like, there's one right way to be. We must make eye contact. Like, no, we really want to get out of that, you know? And, and um, yeah, sadly, a lot of people are having the, that experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, Darlene here said, when professionals talk about autism to parents, it's always negative, which kind of underscores what you were saying. Uh, it scares parents and makes them panic. Uh, the panic parents uh, try to go out and get as much help and support. Uh, there really isn't enough support for families. How can we change that model? And I guess there's, there's really two things to address there. One, this this idea that um, you know parents are being frightened, but but two, even beyond that, uh, I hate to say this, but um, many of the approaches that are being recommended today are not neurodiversity affirming, are 
arguably very harmful um, to to uh, kids. So, you know, Alex, any thought? I mean, I you know, I know when we introduced you, we talked about how you're doing training, and I thought I, I always love to hear people that I think are, are just really people that kind of get it and they're heading in the right direction that are doing training because that means there's a spread of, of, of good information. But even if we were to look at people coming out of professional uh, programs today, it seems that there's a lot of old and bad information out there that's still being taught. How, how do we change that? <sighs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's some, we're, 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 there's a long way to go. Right. I mean, but if you just look, you know, at guy at like the kind of list of presenters and the topics that you, you know, people you brought on the show, like there's there's some seeds here where we're, you know, of like a little bit of growth, right? And I think, you know, introducing these other, um, you know, uh, like the Monadella hooks of the world to, um, you know, uh, like brain body parenting, you know, to, uh, you know, to a school, to an organization. Um, I think, you know, to answer the question, you know, I mean, part of the issue, right, is that like, that I think part of what needs to change, like I was saying in the presentation was the the way that professionals instill the fear to the families like Mm -hmm. this is an emergency right you know and it's not an emergency you know it's not an emergency you know like like let's slow down for a second here right so it's like the messaging to families is really critical um but yes i do think families need more support i think there needs to be more funding i think we need to be advocating on a statewide level for more funding for 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 parent support groups for family supports for for regional centers it's called different things in different states right before um you know regional centers would be providing more support right? so absolutely there's an advocacy issue to provide more funding and more support for families going through this process i agree with that yeah absolutely and you mentioned mona uh, i had the uh, the the honor of being on a program earlier this week with Mona, uh, actually, that was being held by the Psychotherapy Networker uh, magazine. Um, and of course, they have broadly, a, um, you know, an audience that are a lot of professionals. Uh, and we were talking about Mona's work and restraint and seclusion um, and anything we can do to, to continue to, you know, highlight the work of, of people like you and Mona and others that are you know, really trying to push us in the right direction, but systems are hard to change. And, you know, it's really frustrating. Even when I look at, uh, you know, what are coming, you know, what, what people are coming out of university programs with, uh, that are going into schools and working with schools, you know, you, you brought up when you talked about autism, like the ear of the refrigerator mom. And of course, everybody would look at that right now and, and say, oh, well, that's, that's absurd. That's ridiculous. That was in the 1950s. Yet, in many of our schools and many of our institutions, we're relying on science from the 1930s and 50s in terms yeah. of here. But we nobody caught up with the latest neuroscience. That's totally. right. That's right. Which which is really uh, frustrating to me. I mean, when we simplify behavior to to simple functions and and don't really take into account the brain trauma, any of those things, uh, it's just such an incomplete um, look. But that's. That's still widely what's being taught. Uh, So, you know, changing these systems is really tough. Yeah. So uh, a friend here in uh, New Zealand, uh, Linda, and uh, Linda says uh, that she's actually watching this over breakfast. So uh, we've got people from all over the world that watch. I saw somebody else from Scotland. uh, And Linda says, as with the DSM, often it is the tools, you know, quote unquote, that professionals use that generate the deficit labels. Uh, EG or OT sensory assessments um, uh, that was used with one of our students recently was full of language like problem behaviors. 
Yeah, and uh, you know, and I was I mentioned that a little bit in when I was describing some of the language and some of the autism assessment tools I use as a psychologist. And so, you know, first of all, like, you know, we need to be doing more research into having better tools out there, right? And I think for adults, there's some things that I'm seeing, like, um, for example, something called the CAT-Q, the Camouflaging Autistic Traits Questionnaire. Like, okay, this is an improvement. Like, like, this is, if you, if you look at that, like, the language is not that pathologized, but most of the stuff out there really has a lot of these over-pathologizing things. And I think that, like, if we have to use them to get a diagnosis, I do think it's important. Like, so for example, maybe if we don't use certain tools, then a kid's not going to get a certain diagnosis that would provide access to important services. Right. right. right? So we think we, you know, have to use some of these tools and in, in, for, for practical purposes sometimes. Um, but I think sometimes it's important to have that conversation with the family. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, like, yeah, I do not like the, you know, this is not a great framing of it. Right. And you mm-hmm. can help families to think critically mm-hmm. about, about that as well. Mm-hmm. And Linda followed up with, uh, what are your thoughts of the ADOS 2 assessment tool? Ooh, good question. Um, whew, not, I'm no longer a big, I, well, I was never loved the ADOS. Um, I think that it is. And just for people that may not know, that's the awesome diagnostic observation, observation schedule, right? Schedule. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, so that's a pretty like standard, certainly in the States. I'm not sure how it is like worldwide. But um, very standard, sometimes some places considered the a gold standard for autism assessment. Um, so uh, I'm not a huge fan of it um, for older kids and teens and adults because I think some of the questions can come across as a little condescending. Um, I just don't think it's often necessary to get to a diagnosis. I think that the way it plays out with like a toddler. You know, like, I don't think it's, you know, that that bad. And yes, I think we can get some useful information from doing an ADOS. Um, I just try to avoid using it with the older ones because I just think that, you know, I mean, this is based on conversations I've had with autistic people and telling me about their experiences with the ADOS mm-hmm. as like, you know, this assessment just felt kind of condescending. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like, well, what's really necessary to do to come to an autism diagnosis? And it's not always it's not always necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a comment here from Ruth Ann said, yes, I agree so much that parents should not hide yeah. an autism diagnosis from their children. Uh, and went on to said they, um, my parents never told me that the neurologist thought I might have Asperger's when I was five and they never pursued an official diagnosis. So I did not, uh, did it on my own when I was diagnosed at age 21. Yeah. You know, and I think that, you know, one of the, one of the challenges there is like, you know, I, I, I have some, Empathy for parents, like they're born into the same ableist system that we all are with the, with all the stigma and negative stereotyping. And I do think that parents sometimes believe that they're doing something helpful or like I, I, I can. But, you know, it's like hiding this, hiding this diagnosis, like, you know, like we're, we're not giving kids and teens and young adults the opportunity to maybe understand themselves. Like, well, why is something kind of different for me? Is there a, a community out there of, of people that are more like me? Right. Like this is a really, really important thing that mm-hmm. I think we miss. miss. Yeah. Uh, so Aaron says, uh, this is wonderful information. No one at my child's school has asked her what she needs to succeed while they create compliance goals for her. Uh, you know, I have I have such a 
um, issue around the compliance focus that exists in so many of our schools. And again, there are exceptions. There are places that are doing fantastic work. But, you know, I think about this idea of compliance and no parent I know, and, and your parent, you can relate to this. Uh, if I said to you, you know, um, Alex, what are your goals for your children? I'm sure compliance would not be at the top of your list. You know, we don't dream of our kids being compliant. We dream of them being kind. We dream of them being, yeah. uh, you know, what, whatever they might want to be. But compliance is not one of those things. Yet many of our systems are really focused on compliance. I know. And, you know, um, it's like it's that framing that like when we think of compliance as the ultimate goal that I think leads to things like restraint and seclusion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I recognize that, that can be thought as a little oversimplified, but I but I think there's truth to that where it's oh, like, yeah. Yeah. right, we, we, like, like that is the sort of philosophical framing that leads mm-hmm. to these harmful practices. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean. Um, I think it's good to be pushing back up on that. And I agree with everything you said. Mm-hmm. Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. Yeah, th- thank you for including that. Actually, I wanna, um, I'm gonna add that. Uh, thanks, Diana, for, for adding the Thinking Person's Guide to Autism. It's another great website um, with a lot of articles that are excellent. Um, and I'm not familiar with autistic science lady. So that, that's, uh, yeah, I didn't know that one either. Yeah. 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 So n- another great resource. Yeah. All right. Um, so I'm just going to continue to go through some of these. We've got a lot of comments here. Uh, Ruth Ann again said, but I do agree that many times behavior is communication. Uh, but I guess it's important to be aware that it not always is. So Ruth Ann said that I've learned from neuroclastic that not all behavior is communication. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure exactly, exactly where, where you might be headed with that, but, you know, I guess the, the, the one point that's really, that I've learned from the work of people like Mona and you and others uh, is this thought that not all behavior is intentional. Uh, you know, a lot of people look at all behavior as being a matter of intent, that, that kids are making choices. And, and that's where we get things like you need to make better choices. Uh, and, and the whole idea that we've got kind of these bottom up behaviors that are really kind of coming from our, our nervous system that are protective. And, you know, uh, I, I really think does change a lot of the way we look at things. Yeah, um, thoughts? Great. Yeah, I mean, I really, really agree with that. And I think, you know, uh, you know, I think some of the 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 um, reasoning that I wrote, you know, talked about thinking of behavior as communication was just around, you know, how sometimes I think, um, you know, actions, movements that are not like typical speech or the way, you know, um, are not always taken as seriously. Right. So, like, for example, um, you know, I had a, a, you know, if I've had I, can, I can't speak specifically about clients of confidentiality issues, right. but I can speak right. kind of generally, you know, that I've had clients where um, there is a medical issue that, you know, they couldn't really tell us about, right? But they were starting to kind of like hit their stomach in a certain place, right? And it was like, do we have a physician that's w- willing to sort of like think broadly about what, uh, you know, what this behavior might be communicating, right? But I agree, you know, not always. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's important to tune into these things and maybe particularly with a non-speaking uh, mm-hmm. uh, population. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Diana uh, said, you know, again, nodding profusely. So you, you had a lot of that. Uh, Angela asked a question. Are there resources for people who use the court system to mandate ABA for elementary age children? CPS is a real solution and better and more affirming. That is a great question. I I don't know. I think you can you can point people towards the research for the collaborative and proactive solutions model. And Ross Green's website, Lives in the Balance, has a lot of free stuff on it, mm-hmm. including lists of the resources mm-hmm. uh, or the research. 
Right. So, and, and of course, it is evidence based as well, which, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, Aaron said, instead of compliance goals, what should a goal look like for a verbally aggressive behavior and or task avoidance? Yeah. Well, the, well, the first question becomes like, well, why is the child, you know, becoming verbally aggressive, right? Is it because, you know, um, we're, or why is the child avoiding the task? Are we picking the right battles? Are we, you know, is this expectation this, that this child write for 20 minutes, the right expectation, or is it that too much, right? And that maybe they should be able to just write about Minecraft for five minutes and that's it. And that's all we're expecting right now. Maybe we can gently try and stretch it, right? So maybe the goal, you know, is like, I would say the goal has to be more about sort of meeting a child where they're at. And, and then just for anything about verbal aggression, right? So this has to do with just like emotion regulation in general. Um, so it's not so much like the actual words that come out, but the internal experience the child is getting dysregulated. I mean, the goal I would say is like for, um, the child, for the adults, for the aide, the teacher, the therapist to notice like, okay, is this child, you know, getting a little more dysregulated, getting more stressed, you know, like what are the tools? So a goal might be um, adults will notice first signs of stress as A, B, and C for child um, and therefore will do this particular um, you know, self-regulation strategy or regulation strategy, we'll be able to take a break, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the goal is around noticing what's causing the frustration, being able to, to kind of prevent it before we get there. Because mm -hmm. once we get to the point of like full-blown red zone verbal dysregulation, we're kind of too late, mm -hmm. right? It's why, you know, we think right. of right. when you get to a point of restraint, you know, or an ex mm -hmm. you know, exclusion or a kid's totally dysregulated, it's like mm -hmm. multiple things that we missed along the way because mm -hmm. once you know mm -hmm. um so i think you know backing up going upstream looking at you know what the roots of that are really. yeah yeah and, and really digging deep right really really deep digging deep into uh you know uh, right now uh sort shanker has kind of come into my head here and, mm -hmm. and one of the questions that Stuart uh ask is is why and why now so why are we seeing that behavior why are we seeing that behavior now digging deeper to try to understand what might be leading to that and as you mentioned you know these behaviors are often a response to to stress so right. what are the stressors that might be right on that child and, and giving that child a, a difficult time um yeah, yeah that's uh all right so i'm gonna keep going through a few here uh ruthann says uh some of my main passions are uh is how do we teach uh psychiatric hospitals to help autistic people yeah i mean i think I think in general, it's important for medical schools, uh, for, you know, the, the, the grand rounds that many hospital systems do for training to sort of incorporate these ideas and, you know, neurodiversity of neurodiversity affirming care, you know, into the education, into the training, right? So I have done some of that with residents here. I work, uh, one of my jobs at Kaiser Oakland Medical Center, in addition to private practice, where we do do some of that. We do train residents, we do train, you know, graduate students, but, um, I, you know, it, it's a, it's a process, right? And mm -hmm. psychiatric hospitals, I think it leaves, you know, I, I know a lot of autistic patients that have not had great experiences in psychiatric mm -hmm. hospitals. They've not really adequately understood autism and autistic features. So, you know, I think it speaks to a need for more training, more resources, more support, more specializations. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important point that they're not good enough and that, that there's a lot of problems there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that, that you know, I found, Alex, is that there are, 
you know, acute psychiatric facilities uh, across the yeah. nation that don't do things like restraint and seclusion, but there are, are many that still do. Um, so th this kind of issue, you know, that we're, we're talking about kind of the uh, compliance, the control approaches are prevalent in, in some of these facilities. And, you know, the thought process is that we have to do these things. You know, we don't like to, but we have to do these things. But we also know, I mean, I, I talked to a few folks um, that worked on a project uh, probably a decade ago uh, to reduce and eliminate restraint and seclusion from acute psychiatric facilities. Absolutely right. a possibility. Um, but, you know, like schools, uh, you know, some some hospitals, some institutions are further along than others. And, you know, again, it's about how do we spread the better practice and get people, you know, really doing things that are going to be, you know, not just better support for, um, you know, neurodivergent individuals, but for any individual that might be in crisis, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, Linda just said, I like what Dr. Klein said about goals and the plan being for, yeah, I, this, I caught this too, for yeah. the adult and the educator, right? I, I yeah. love that. And I'm glad you brought that up, Linda, because as you were saying that, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. We, we see a tendency to make it all about the kid. How are we going to fix the kid? Right. But, you know, like you and I had talked about low arousal before and low arousal, so much of it is on how do we change the way that we respond to a situation? Right. How do we handle it differently from our part? And, and that's such an important point. Yeah. Love that. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to get a couple more and uh, then we will wrap up and, and let you go because I know that uh, I don't want to keep you here too long. Um uh, Diana again said yes, uh, because focusing on behaviors is a vicious and exhausting cycle. We certainly yeah. see that a lot. Um, Aaron again kind of asked and said, you know, I'm trying to get my uh, school to change their expectations and meet my kiddos needs, but it's so hard. And Aaron, one thing I would say to you is, um, you know, one of the things you might want to do, and, and I've done this before, is, you know, uh, get a couple, couple copies of a book like uh, Dr. Ross Green's um, uh, Lost in School or Dr. Monadella Hook's Beyond Behaviors and and share those with your IEP team. Um, you know, these presentations that we do, one of the hopes is that people will share them and we want to see, you know, parents sharing these with their teachers, with their educators. Um, you know, our group, our the Alliance is really made up of a lot of parents, uh, parents of kids that have gone through uh, and, and experience negative things like restraint and seclusion, but a lot of kids that are being uh, kind of pushed down uh, in various areas related to their behaviors. But we also have a lot of self-advocates, tremendous number of uh, autistic self-advocates. Uh, we've got teachers, we've got educators, we've got administrators. And, and the point is, these are all things that we can do to change systems. So uh, please don't hesitate to share these programs that we do. Uh, they're also all available on YouTube, which is, tends to be a better platform than Facebook for sharing things. But, you know, share things, share books. Um, Alex, other, other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that sometimes, you know, like it's such a battle. I just such admiration for I know how hard parents are working to get the school to change and advocating for their kids really impressive and it's so hard sometimes i think that often there's like one or two people in there like it's usually it's mostly i think there's sadly are exceptions but like it's not every single person that is like kind of contrary to you like sometimes you find one or two people right we like latch onto those people and try to keep them as close as, as we can like that one speech therapist that one aide one teacher who really got my kid you know um and how can we sort of like 
team up in these IEP meetings to sort of, you know, try and support the kid as best they can. But yeah, and I, I agree with what you said, you know, with what you said, um, Guy, about, uh, you know, like also sharing the resources. And I think right. talking to the schools about like, well, what's really working? You know, like, yeah, you're trying to, you know, like if we don't change our expectations, you know, like what you're doing right now, like, yeah. isn't working, like, let's try something else, right? And I yeah. think schools really need to be listening to to parents more, of course, but um, I know it's a battle, and I know it's exhausting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're right, that, that, that it amazes me that sometimes um, anyone will continue to do something that's not working because yeah. they believe it's the right approach without really stocking, you know, t- you know, stopping to take stock and go, this isn't working. We're seeing more behaviors. We're seeing increased behaviors. You know, and, and Diane mentions here that, you know, her kiddo school is also escalating her her child. And, you know, unfortunately, that's something that we see a lot when we look at, you know, kids that are restrained, secluded, suspended, expelled, all these things, is that often it's a well-intentioned but not really appropriately trained staff member that not only fails to escalate a kid who is beginning to escalate, they actually end up escalating them uh, when they're putting more demands on a child who's already having a hard time meeting the demands that are on their plate. The child begins to escalate when, as you said, they become inflexible when the child is inflexible. You know, an inflexible kid and an inflexible adult, you know, is going to is going to escalate. And, you know, sadly, we've we've seen many instances where kids end up getting physically restrained or secluded because an adult has inadvertently really kind of ratcheted up the temperature and not realize is that kid really gets to a point where they are getting to that fight or flight state that their prefrontal cortex is going offline. The thinking yeah. part of their brain is, is not available. And, right. uh, you know, it's unfortunate, but we, we see that approach really commonly. Yeah. Um, so Michelle said, I would love to collaborate with Alex and Michelle is with, uh, the, yeah. Can you put my email in the chat? Um, it's the Dr. Alex Klein at gmail.com. Okay. Okay. Let yeah. me. Because I'm not uh, able to access the, the chat. Yeah. I'll, I'll grab that in one second here and I'll put that in. Uh, and we'll just take a couple more and then I'm going to let you go here. Uh, let's see. Oh, wow. We just had more and more coming. You, you, a lot of, lot of engagement here, Alex, which is always great. Uh, but probably more questions than we're going to be able to get to today. Um, let's see. I'm just going to take a quick look here. Um, <clears throat> Let's see. Uh, this is kind of a long one, but uh, uh, Spectrum Life, who, who uh, participates very often, I, always has great input to add. Uh, and this was on a comment about verbal aggression, uh, says, I'd argue that dysregulation being very high is the primary reason for any level of aggression. Stressors have already added up tremendously to get to this point. So schools must ask, is the environment overstimulating or understimulating? Uh, what are the students' sensory profiles? Uh, are their cognitive communication needs being respected? Are they being accommodated? Uh, are the demands appropriate? Uh, is a student dealing with physical mental health, uh, physical slash mental health symptoms? Um, and, and kind of goes on. But really, all, all again, great points. Um, there, there's so much beneath the surface. And, and you know, I, this is why I always get really um, kind of passionate and frustrated by a lot of the approaches to looking at behaviors in schools when you know they just boil it down to here's here's one of the four functions of behavior we think it's this uh here's an adult hypothesis let's solve the problem we, we really need to dig deeply when kids are having a difficult time understand why it's happening why it's happening then and you know i, I remember talking at one point to uh occupational therapist uh, greg santusi who who i think really yeah. highlighted his work and we interviewed greg and as we were talking i had this like moment where i'm like 
it's not even just about doing a, you know, a functional behavioral assessment. We need to be doing environmental assessments. We need right. to be looking about what in the environment may be making it hard for a child. And yeah. so often, again, the focus is on the child. The focus isn't on the adult who may be, you know, and when we see this, we see a child that has a lot of difficulty in envi environment one, moves into another environment with different adults. Child hasn't changed. The adults have. The child's a different child. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's so much more we need to look at. Um, mm -hmm. and, and thank you, um, Spectrum Life. That was, that was a great point. Um, so with that, um, again, you know, we've covered a lot of ground. Uh, I think we could probably talk for another hour, uh, mm -hmm. but I want to be respectful of your time. And I know we had a, little, a few technical issues here early on. Um, before I let you go, though, any final thoughts? And again, I'm going to share your email, but I want to give you a chance to share any final thoughts that you might have. No, I mean, just to respond to a couple of, you know, that the the comments, I mean, I just think the comments speak for themselves. I think it was in response to one of the um, questions that a parent asked about verbal aggression, you know, from uh, Spectrum Life was, the, is you know, that, that sort of comment response speaks for itself. But I'd say like that is really the core of it. So I want to highlight um, that response and just say, you know, to you, Guy, thanks so much for the work you're doing. I think this is a really, really critical uh, important piece. And thanks for bringing us all together and um, and talking about these important topics and for the work you're doing. So really appreciate well, it. Well, and, and mutually, I, you know, I really uh, have a lot of respect for what you're doing. Uh, when I saw you give a, a presentation that was similar to this, I was like, oh, we've got to we've got to have you on right. and, and talk to you. So thank you so much for making the time today. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate all that you're doing to, to make a difference. And I'm sure we'll be connecting again. One, one of the things I can tell you is that, uh, um, you know, once you're on this uh, show once, you know, I'm probably going to be after you yeah, again to, to come back. Love it. Um, I'm going to share a real quick announcement here, but you can hang out for a second if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, that is that we've got a uh, another event coming up in two weeks. And this one you might be interested in. Yes. Uh, Alex as well. We've got uh, Mona Delahook joining us again. And this is actually Mona's, I think, third time joining us. And I actually was uh, on an event with her earlier this week. And She's going to be joining me. We're doing a, um, a one-day event uh, on May 11th, and it's about reducing restraint and seclusion use. That we're, It's a training event that we're, we're doing, and Mona's going to be joining me for that as well. And, of course, you mentioned her uh, new book. Um, you got it right I was, there. Yeah, I, I have it sitting right here and was fortunate enough to get uh, a copy of this uh, uh, very early. And, uh, you know, it's fantastic. And I think very attuned to the kinds of things that we've been talking about here today. So uh, for all of you that have been watching, I uh, just want to thank you for joining us as always. Uh, please share these events with others that you know, and we look forward to seeing you again. So with that, uh, we will wrap up the broadcast. Alex, if you want to hang around for one second, uh, yep. I'll let you, let you go. Thank you so much.